How can focusing on death improve our lives and the world around us? Welcome to The Hub for Important Ideas. I'm Steve James. And I'm Ken Swain. In this episode, we discuss death, death reflection, what is called the death positive movement, and related topics. We're going to play for you a recent conversation we had with Dr. Sheldon Solomon. Now, we spoke with Sheldon in his home by way of Zoom. You're going to hear his dog barking in the background. That's right. An ice cream truck outside his window. <laughs> it was quite a circus. A cell phone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's the real world, not a studio. Think of it as part of the charm. Yes, it's very long on charm as it always is with Sheldon. There you go. Sheldon Solomon, Ph.D., is a social psychologist and professor at Skidmore College. He's best known for co-developing terror management theory with Jeff Greenberg and Tom Pazinski, which is concerned with how humans deal with our own sense of mortality. He's the author or co-author of over a 100 articles and several books, and he's been featured in several films, television documentaries, and radio interviews. He co-authored the book, The Worm at the Core, on the role of death in life with Greenberg and Pazinski, and he most recently appeared in the documentaries Planet of the Humans and Unfit. Here's our conversation with Dr. Solomon. Sheldon, welcome back to The Hub for Important Ideas. Great to be here, Steve and Ken. Thanks for having me. Hi, Sheldon. You? <laughs> Hi. So, Sheldon... Let's start with something really basic. Ernest Becker wrote, The idea of death, the fear of it, haunts the human animal like nothing else. It is a mainspring of human activity designed largely to avoid the fatality of death, to overcome it by denying in some way that it is the final destiny. Of all things that move man, one of the principal ones is his terror of death. So this episode is about the death positive movement, related ways of thinking about and talking about death. Can we start with your home base? What is terror management theory? Sure. Uh, terror management theory is our effort, uh, Jeff Greenberg, Tom Pazinski, uh, and myself, to take Ernest Becker's ideas and to just describe them in ways that allowed us to derive hypotheses from them so that we could provide empirical support for them. And so Ernest Becker, in the passage that uh, you just read, claims that what ultimately underlies almost every human activity, whether we're, we're aware of it or not, uh, is our disinclination to die. Uh, and but he goes on in his books to elaborate on that idea, pointing out that we are in many ways like all other creatures to the extent that we're biologically constructed to want to survive. But we are alone amongst uh, different forms of life in that we have the cognitive sophistication that enables us to recognize the inevitability of our own death even in situations when our lives are not directly threatened. And what Becker argues is that if that's all that we were aware of, I'm going to die someday and I can die at any time, 
we'd be literally paralyzed with debilitating existential terror. Well, here's where the terror management part comes in. What Becker argues is that most of us don't think about death all the time, nor are we quivering blobs of biological protoplasm, and that what gives us the psychological fortitude to stand up on any given day is the belief that we're a person of value in a world of meaning, and that the way that we accomplish that is through the development and maintenance of what the anthropologists call cultural worldviews, that we all embrace, long before we're aware of the fact that we even exist, culturally constructed beliefs about reality that we share with the people around us. You know, starting with that all cultures give us an account of the origin of the universe, and they tell us what we're supposed to do while we're here, and they promise some kind of immortality, either literal or symbolic, to people who behave in accordance with cultural dictates, and that in addition to that, it gives us opportunities to feel that we're valuable by meeting or exceeding the standards of value that's associated with our social roles in our culture. So to to make a long story short or a short story long, what terror management theory proposes following Becker uh, is that the uniquely human awareness of death gives rise to potentially paralyzing terror that we manage to the best of our abilities by trying to at all times fervently maintain confidence in our cultural worldviews as well as a sense that we're valuable participants in that cosmological drama. And these are primarily unconscious. Absolutely. And very important to note that, Steve, because most people, if they hear these ideas, what folks and very intelligent folks often say is, no, I don't think about death at all, or I don't think about it that much. Or I'm not afraid of dying. Almost everybody says that. What's that, Ken? Yeah. Well, almost everybody so. tells you that, they don't, that they're not afraid of dying. That's correct. If you grew up in a Jewish family like mine in New Jersey, you're like, of course that's true. How, why did it take you so long to figure it out? But most people are like, this is a cavalier nonsense. I think so little about death that it's inconceivable that these ideas have credence. And yet for Becker and terror management theory, that is precisely the point that The primary function of cultural beliefs and self-esteem is to ward off the prospect of death or even for it to be explicitly on our minds. So that's a great point, Ken. And your research has to do with what you call mortality salience and what that does to a person when they become momentarily aware of their own mortality, but then they forget about that, but it's simmering there below the surface. Yes. Yeah, so well, yeah, yeah. Go, yeah. No, well, well put, Steve. So what we found, and it took us decades to really microscopically nail this down empirically, is that when death is on our minds and we're kind of aware of it, that instigates one kind of psychological defenses. We call them proximal defenses, where you just try and get death out of your mind. So you might be thinking of dying and then you might 
but you're, you might have a pain in your chest and you might say, wow, I got to go to the doctor to be sure that that's not a heart attack. Well, that would be like a proximal defense. It's kind of rational. It's like, I don't want to die. And so let me go do this. But you can also just say, wow, yeah, I thought about dying, but that doesn't happen to young people and fit people. So that would be kind of a proximal form of denial. You just rationalize that it's not likely to be you. But the more potent and persistent, perhaps, kind of defenses are the totally unconscious ones where implicit death thoughts, that's a Gucci word for just death is on your mind, but you don't know it. That's what underlies our efforts to glob onto our cultural beliefs and to self-esteem and to use those as like psychological life jackets. And so what we do to keep conscious death thoughts out of mind is to engage in these proximal defenses. But for the most part, what we do is to keep defending our cultural beliefs and keep striving to increase our self-regard. And that's the way that we ward off these non-conscious intimations of mortality that we're bombarded with almost every day in perpetuity. Is the dog barking in the background? The dog is, is barking in okay. the background. That's right. uh, unfortunately, if I move elsewhere, it's going to be a bulldozer uh, <laughs> knocking a house down. So, yeah, we're kind of fucked. I hope it'll stop. Well, listeners, that's perfectly okay. We have a dog barking in the background, and that's real life. Anyway, yeah. it's a union dog. He's he's getting union union scale. <laughs> union scale. Uh, absolutely. Sheldon, with the Amigos, you guys have used the mortality salience with people to remind them of death sort of unconsciously, and then you measured differences in their reflections on life decisions, whether they gravitate towards people like themselves or people dislike themselves, whether they were able to use crucifix to bang in a nail, which is a very difficult thing for a religious person to do. We want to ask how mortality salience and its effect on death anxiety differs from this thing called death reflection. Yeah, super important question, because what we have done primarily in our work is to remind people of their mortality in subtle or even uber subtle, completely non-conscious ways. Sneaky ways. Yes. And so... We bring people into the lab. They're filling out questionnaires. And then right in the middle of it, we ask them to jot down their thoughts and feelings about dying. Or we have people outside of the lab. We stop them either in front of a grocery store or a funeral parlor or back in the lab. And they're reading shit on the computer. And we flash the word death for like 28 milliseconds so fast that you can't even see things. And it is from those relatively fleeting death reminders that we have developed this model of proximal and distal defenses in response to conscious and non-conscious death thoughts, right? That's what we call in psychobabble mortality salience. All right. But This is completely different from a longstanding idea that dates back to antiquity that suggests 
that the only way to live a good life is to come to terms with your mortality. So it was Socrates who said to philosophize is to learn how to die. You got the Tibetan book of the dead, and there are Western and Eastern traditions that seem to have almost nothing in common superficially, except to agree on that relatively straightforward point that Albert Camus reduces to a fortune cookie-like statement when he says, come to terms with death, thereafter, anything is possible. Carlos Castaneda. Yeah, same same thing. Absolutely, Steve. So those of us that grew up in the hippie days, there's just no shortage of literary, theological, anthropological conceptions of what the good life entails. And they all suggest that it has to do with coming to terms with death somehow. And the important point, and here's where I think the idea of death reflection, I hope the term reflection is what really captures the essence of the difference. It is a much more extensive and much more conscious and explicit effort to come to terms with the reality of the human condition. But for that to happen, you have to jump out of the terror management system, which is explicitly designed in many ways, perhaps ironically, to ensure that you never sit still long enough for that to occur. Okay. Uh Easier to tranquilize ourselves with the trivial or to just spend our lives being demoralized because we're not as rich as Oprah or deranged because whoever it is that we currently idolize today has instructed us to feel that way. Yeah. What is mindfulness? Mindfulness is a buzzword of sorts that is trying to capture at its best, a state of mind that is conducive to this kind of deep death reflection that is thought to be associated with very positive outcomes. In fact, to back up for a bit, because, you know, you guys, we've been talking as if for more than 20 years at this point, yeah, it se- like sure that. seems that way. Yeah. Uh, but we've we've spent so much time, and I think appropriately so, just we keep going back and we're like, all right, we got to do something. Our disinclination to die and the malignant manifestations of death anxiety, the result have literally put uh, humanity and the planet upon which we reside at risk. And Becker was always painfully aware of the frightening implications of not trying to somehow engage with benign or benevolent ways to manage death anxiety. But here we are, we've got these long-standing traditions. Mindfulness, my understanding, is it's derived from Eastern traditions, yoga, meditation, or uh, we go Aldous Huxley and Island, be here now. It is the cultivation Uh, either through contemplation, through exercise, through psychodynamic or psychodelic interventions to create 
a state of mind that is conducive to overcoming our anxieties that unless we do work with ourselves to alter the typical course of psychodynamic events, keeps us in the hamster wheel of life where anytime we encounter intimations of death, we're just going to hop on the wheel of proximal and distal defenses. I got to say, I've been having trouble staying on that wheel lately just from a a lot of stuff is just reminding me that we're vulnerable. And I think about death to a ridiculous degree. And sometimes I really have to kind of like rein it in and it flirts with despair. It's very difficult to do this. You guys must have gone through this many times over the years when you're face to face with this information. It's very difficult to shoulder it. Yeah, I think it is, and particularly in moments where life is kneeing us in the groin. And so this idea of death, reflection, mindfulness, important, important to consider, important to explore, but also important to note that it is not in any way palliative or necessarily preventative in the wake of these kinds of somewhat, if not overtly traumatic moments. So is mindfulness similar to flow? Is it a form of flow? You know what I'm talking about, flow, you know, being the, you know. See, I I think it is. Yeah. So so here we are, and forgive me, because, you know, again, we've been talking for 20 years. I can't remember what I had for lunch. (laughs) And I I don't recall if we've had this talk where it's like, let's not get too enamored with our pieces of auditory symbolism that we're attaching to non-linguistic psychological processes, right? So we're talking about mindfulness. We're talking about flow. We're talking about reflection. And I think that these are, with all due respect to the folks who have formulated these terms, I think that there's considerable overlap and that it refers to just a state of affairs where one is momentarily unencumbered by our typical terror management defenses. And that in that psychological space, there is the capacity for individual growth and social progress. And this is what I hope we should be individually and collectively groping for. Yeah, that sounds perfect. Exactly what I'm getting out of reading these articles in this literature. So it has a positive psychological impact is the the bottom line. Yeah, I think so. And not to complicate things, but You guys know that my longstanding goal before I retire in a couple of years is to have the equivalent of a high school education in the Middle Ages. And I've been working on this project with some other folks, and it's based on Aristotle's conception of a good life. And I've been reading what Aristotle writes about flourishing, and I'm blown away. You know, it may sound corny, but there really is nothing new under the sun. Aristotle, in tremendous detail, described the phenomenological experience of an individual in an optimal state of well-being. Yeah, and it sounds like somebody out of a Huxley novel or somebody who just got done mastering the intricacies of meditation and mindfulness. It is 
like the chicks make me high dude describes flow chick sent chick sent mccallie no i met him he he told me this is how i pronounce my name chicks make me high that is not true that's what he told me that is true (laughs) wow that's but anyway but the point is is that when i read his work and when i've heard him and folks describe a state of flow some would say well that's not quite the same as a monk in deep meditation they're not like flowing down the ski slope at 100 miles an hour but i would argue there is overlap in these again states of phenomenological awareness that despite their nominal differences have in common a momentary suspension of linear time and space at its best a momentary diminution of our typical anxieties and the defense mechanisms, Becker would call it our character, that is erected in order to enable us to seem to be in possession of some modicum of psychological equanimity at any given moment. I think the difference is, I mean, this is my humble opinion, But the difference is that when you embark on meditation, you're consciously choosing to do that or reflection. I'm I'm consciously reflecting now on death. Whereas if you're like me, I I find flow in carpentry, right? Because carpentry just completely absorbs you. It's physical, but it's also mental. It's math. You're doing fractions all the time. You're measuring, but, but then you have to exert forced energy to, to, to do it. And it just completely absorbs you and you're not thinking about anything else, but I don't do carpentry as a, a conscious purposeful way to overcome death anxiety. It's just, it's a byproduct. You do it because Goldie said, Steve, you better get this done. (laughs) Well, there's that. Let's not forget (laughs) that piece. Yeah. But that, but so in other words, you can achieve this mindfulness in non-intentional ways. I would say so, and um, would certainly welcome input from other folks in this regard, at least when I'm just depending on my own personal experiences. Yeah, I can remember vividly my days as a cook and the kind of flow that comes you're feeding 300 people and you're so deeply involved that it is Zen or Buddhist-like, to, not that I know what I'm talking about, but the extent to which your sense of self is momentarily transcended, that's very different than the hyper-conscious contemplation that is presumably associated with these uh, meditative states that having grown up in New Jersey, I've not yet had the privilege of partaking of. But I think they're different roads to the same outcome. Could be that different kinds of individuals are more attracted to one as opposed to the other. Maybe there's a harmonic balance of both. Interesting questions, perhaps, uh, to be explored empirically. We've just gone through a a remarkable period with COVID. And for people who study death anxiety, there could 
possibly never have been, maybe since 9-11, a time where people were so face-to-face with mortality questions. People are dying, they're afraid of being infected, and then there's been people in the service occupations and what they call first responders. And we want to ask, what's the relationship between death reflection and those kinds of service occupations? Uh, great question. Let's back up and maybe talk about death, anxiety, or mortality salience and the service professions. Here I could speak with greater confidence. I I can tell you that America has PTSD. The medical profession has been decimated psychodynamically by COVID. I don't know what the percentage is, but it's striking. The American Medical Association says the next pandemic is the mental health crisis of the service providers themselves. A large chunk of public school teachers intend to retire and not other, anecdotally, lots of other folks serving on the front line have been traumatized by these experiences. Now, it is an open and important question to wonder about the extent to which these experiences have served to foster death reflection in some subset of the population, if that makes any sense. In other words, what might be crushing and traumatic for some individuals may in fact serve as a fertile catalyst for death reflection to others. And so there are some folks who have, uh, I believe these are psychologists in Hong Kong, and they're exploring the possibility that the COVID isolation and social distance may have actually been a good thing for some because it provided the substrate for the kind of longstanding and hyperconscious engagement with these existential concerns that may foster a sense of acceptance of one's finitude. So I would say that the relationship is complicated because I could see it going either way. Are we hearing music in the background? Or? You're hearing the ice cream truck. I thought Mr. Softy is in the well, background. No, no, Mr. Huh? Softy. If okay. it was, I wouldn't be fucking talking to you guys. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I, I, I think part of, part of what I read in terms of like the death reflection and then the service occupations is that and the COVID pandemic is that as people were reflecting more on death, they're being forced to because of the emergency, the the COVID pandemic. But as they thought about their own careers, wow. what they do for a living, they then said to themselves, you know, I should be doing something for the common good. Take myself out of this money grab that I'm involved in, right? That's a great point, Steve. This has had that kind of potent life-altering transformation. And again, here I don't know the statistics, but there is a substantial chunk of 20 and 30-somethings for whom this has been a tremendous wake-up call where it took a ridiculous dose of mortality salience to render absurd 
being on the hamster wheel of life. Yeah, no, I don't want to be a bank teller. I don't want to work on Wall Street. I want to do something tangible or I want to do something that fosters social justice. That's an awesome thing. Just as many people, though, I would say have been driven by COVID into even more, to borrow from Kierkegaard, being frenetically tranquilized by the trivial in an insatiable pursuit of money and stuff. So even here, I think it could go either way. As our late friend Dave Bodine would say, chasing the almighty dollar. There you go. Yeah, yeah. So we've been talking with social psychologist Sheldon Solomon about death and a a broad range of topics. We're going to take a short break. Don't go anywhere. Sheldon's going to go out and get an ice cream. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Okay, we'll be right back. We've been talking with social psychologist Sheldon Solomon about death and a broad range of topics. Sheldon, what does aging have to do with mortality salience and topics like work motivation? Probably quite a bit. And to be silly but truthful, I'm going to go with it depends. All right. So, what we know and who we want to talk to is Molly Maxfield, who's a professor at Arizona State University. She was a Skimmore student, great musician turned psychologist, studied with Tom and Jeff. And she's a PhD clinician who's also a gerontologist. And what she has done is following Eric Erickson's observation that there's a psychological fork in the road after we get to a certain point. And Erickson made a distinction between despair and ego integrity. He said some people, as they get older, they get angry and fearful at the prospect of dying. Life doesn't seem to have much meaning, and they really don't think too highly of themselves. Another group of individuals, as they get closer to death, life gets even more meaningful. And while they're admittedly apprehensive about dying, they see it as a perfectly reasonable price to pay for the privilege of having been alive in the first place. And so what Molly and and her colleagues and Jeff and Tom have done are experiments showing that when some elderly folks are reminded of their mortality, they become even more defensive, but others become less defensive. And what appears to differentiate between which way one goes has to do with, and this was counterintuitive, it's executive control. So people that are neurologically intact, they're the ones that as they get older seem to come to a better position psychodynamically vis-a-vis their relationship with mortality. They don't respond as defensively. And as they get older, they seem to be more concerned with not what they have, but rather what they leave behind. And it's the folks that are crumbling a bit neuroanatomically that tend to become more rigid and defensive in light of their age, right? When you talk about work motivation, 
Same thing. Uh, I saw in the New York Times a week or two ago, some professor, uh, was it Eric Kandel? Anyway, the guy wanted to know about prize when he was 60. He's like 90 and still plugging along. Life is incredibly meaningful in his case. And this is manifested in the work that he does from which he derives an extraordinary amount of meaning and value. And my understanding is that there is a chunk of humanity for whom work is like that. And as they age, they're no less interested in it. Other folks, for a variety of reasons, not all necessarily having to do with whether the work is rewarding or not, they're eager as they get older to see this as a point to transition from a vocational phase to one in which they have a different phase of life to look forward to. How about meditation? Everybody's talking about meditation. Is it helpful according to current research? Great question, Ken. Depends who you ask, and it depends who you study and what you look for. So we did, we meaning Jeff Greenberg and the people I worked with at the University of Kansas, we did some studies where we compared experienced meditators with a matched control group of people where we just brought the meditators into the lab, had them meditate for an hour, brought the other people into the lab, had them do whatever they wanted, just rest for an hour. And we didn't find any difference on a host of autonomic and neuroanatomical measures. And and we're not the only folks who have failed to find a difference You never hear this. You never, ever hear this. No, you won't. Same thing with biofeedback. So biofeedback works, and so does sitting on your ass for the same amount of time. (laughs) Ditto for meditation, but let's remember that it's easy to find nothing if that's what you're looking for. It was not our intent to debunk meditation, and I say this because anybody who was actually there watching what the meditators were doing as we watched them with their permission through a one-way glass. These guys made my psychedelic-infused days of college and graduate school look like some Baptist teetotaling picnic. In other words, I believe that there are important psychodynamic elements to meditation. Moreover, Tom and his students have done work with Buddhists in Korea, and they've done studies where they have done meditation and mindfulness training in the United States and have shown that it is remarkably effective for diminishing defensive reactions to death reminders, whereas just sitting around as relaxing as it is, does not produce the same effect. So back to your question, Ken, their meditation, again, as far as I know, it goes back to antiquity and that every religious and even philosophical tradition encourages states of mind where you sit the fuck still long enough, they all have respirational components. 
And they're all directed at clearing the mental horizon from the psychological debris that accumulates over the course of a day in conjunction with the overriding state of mind, which tends to be a crassly linear and pragmatic one. And it sure seems to be a sincere effort to create the kind of mental space that's conducive to death reflection and life reflection too, for that matter. Well, I'm really glad we had a chance to talk about this because I read, I read that article following the research you're talking about and it sounded tremendous, you know, it sounded fascinating, but also chanting Buddhist chanting is another form of, just quieting your ego, yep. engaging in a repetitious activity that enables you to reflect quietly to yourself, all of this. But some of it has really negative consequences that I've seen. People chanting for money, for example, you know, chanting for success, that kind yep. of thing. You see that as well. Sheldon, what is the death positive movement. We've seen this. Caitlin Dowdy, I believe, started it. You know her, the Ask a Mortician lady. Yeah. But this whole death positive movement sort of revolves around some of the things we're talking about. What is your understanding of death positive? Yeah, I mean, absolutely, Steve. My understanding is that The death positive movement writ large is the antithesis of the denial of death, as Becker described it in general, and most particularly as a description of contemporary Western culture. So Becker's point is that all cultural worldviews try and obscure the reality of death, but some Uh, do it to the extent of essentially stifling life. And so here we are in the West. Most people have never seen a dead person. When somebody gets old, we don't want to live by them. You got to move to Florida and hit the shuffleboard court. We spend more on cosmetics to avoid looking old than we do on education or something along those lines. And The death positive movement, my understanding is that it started with death cafes. The idea is there's no public space where it is permissible for people to just speak openly about their concerns about dying, their concerns about bereaving someone else having died, or their concerns about how it's possible to live a good life knowing that we're going to die someday. And what has happened, and they have been very popular and for some demonstrably therapeutic, but it's much more than that now. So there's a whole lot of different kinds of death cafes. There are lots of efforts to get people to just think about how they want to die. You don't need to die in an ornate wooden box that costs more than a car. Maybe it's better 
if we're cremated, I want to be cremated and put in a little egg timer so I can be doing <laughs> something useful perhaps at some point. But other folks want to get mulched in a garden. But I think that the, the movement in general is really wanting to just raise attention to this idea, come to terms with death thereafter anything is possible. I think it's based on what follows naturally from Becker's ideas. If death denial is what ultimately underlies the fact that when we remind people in our studies that they're going to die, they hate people who are different. They support fascists like Orange Hitler. I mean, Donald Trump, uh, you know, they're uncomfortable (laughs) with their bodies. They trash the natural environment, it magnifies psychological abnormalities. Well, surely, if we can just get people to be open and honest and create public spaces where it's possible to have these kinds of conversations, frankly, like the ones that we're having now, the the hope is that this will be reflected in so many ways, starting with the way that we each feel about ourselves, not only about when we're about to die, but how we're going to spend our normal waking days throughout our lives. But the hope is that there'll be cascading effects in a rippling fashion that will benefit everybody. I don't want to sound too Walt Disney, but if it's death anxiety that underlies our hostility to people who are different. If it's death anxiety that impel uh, lots of people to embrace the big lie and still think that Donald Trump won the election, if it's death anxiety that's making about a third of the morons, I mean, American citizens that refuse to be vaccinated because they're hanging on to dear life to a delusion in order to reduce existential uncertainties, well, then this death positive should be number one on our to-do list. Like anything, however, there's always a danger because this being America and people being people, it doesn't take long for any good idea to be monetized and commodified. And so my fear, just like any good thing, is that it might, under non-optimal circumstances, be reduced to yet another means to deny death rather than to come to terms with it in an uplifting fashion. Well, it just seems that, and Ken and I have talked about this, and you and I talked about this briefly, there is, and, and I agree with the whole death positive concept, and you're absolutely right, it flows right out of, out of Becker. If death anxiety is the cause of so many social ills, well, let's just embrace death and be aware of death and reflect on death and all these things, and we might thereby reduce these social problems. But, always a but, what bothers me is this idea of death being a taboo, a topic that we don't talk about. We don't talk about that in polite society. We use words like past and they've gone on to their reward or they're going to be with Jesus, you know, those kinds of things. She's in a better place. She's in a better place. And 
we look at this from a 21st century secular perspective and say, oh, well, we know better. We know better than the ancients. We know better than those people who lived thousands of years. And you say, well, wait a minute. Maybe they had a good reason to not be glib about death, not stand up in the pulpit and say, well, Joe took a dirt nap today. Maybe the ancients had a taboo against speaking about death because they were afraid of a slippery slope. They were afraid that if you became too cavalier about death, well, the next step is murder. And Jared Diamond talks about that, that in the traditional societies, murder was a very common way to die. And civilization, which brings police and laws and law enforcement and judges and trials, reduces murder, makes it much more difficult to settle your differences. He stole my pig. I'm going to kill him. Oh, then I'm going to now kill this guy's cousin. Oh, now I'm going to kill half his family. And we wind up in a blood feud. That civilization brought an end to that. But then you think about, okay, if death is this everyday thing, well, why isn't euthanasia on the table? And, you know, assisted suicide. Now, I'm all for assisted suicide if someone's in agony and a terminally ill state incurable. But what about, well, grandma, you know, she's not really contributing so much, so let's just bump her off. And that's the fear, I think, in the conservative mind. That's the fear of the slippery slope that we're not going to take death as seriously as we used to now it's a it's casual conversation and i think this wraps around the abortion issue because in the conservative mind abortion is murder and to the pro choice pro abortion mind well we won't talk about that death part of it we'll just talk about a woman's right to choose This death thing is complicated. It's not as straightforward as the death-positive people would lead us to believe. That's my, my reaction. That's my concern. And I'm not saying I disagree with them. I'm just saying there are real concerns when we get into this. Yeah, absolutely. And without defending the folks who represent this, I don't know if we want to call it a movement, at their best, they would be receptive to dynamic conversation in these venues in the spirit of clarification and refinement. So, yeah, I think you're quite right. These issues surrounding life and death, they're always going to have fuzzy borders, and it's always going to be complicated. And Just like defunding the police might not have been a great choice of words, maybe death positive is a a bit of a misdirection because it implies embracing death to a certain degree or that, quote, death is good. And you've already made the point that it's, yes, good and it's terrible. And I can't remember 
who I, I can't even remember the uh, shit. I wish I wasn't senile um, because somebody <laughs> sent me a, a an email today. Of actually, I'm looking at my email now because I want to find this. Have you ever heard of a guy named Todd May? No, no. He's a philosopher, and he wrote a book called Death. And I'm eager to get it. I ordered it thinking, shit, I wish I had this for today. I meant, So this is great because I meant to mention it. And evidently, his view is that, you know, in order to really come to terms with death, we've got to get in this kind of dialectical oscillation between death is fine. Now, I'm not, I don't need to be looking forward to it, but I can accept it. But he's like, that's in, inconceivable if you don't also recoil in horror from the prospect of your utter obliteration and those for whom you care. And this is just from an abstract of the book, but I was like, I need to see what this guy's saying. Right. Because right. it may turn out that death positive may be too one-sided unless we get the death negative or the yes, but part of it. And, and, and as you point out, none of this is an indictment uh, of a discourse of which I am somewhat unfamiliar. But what I would say is that, as you did early on, Steve, it's right-minded, uh, despite the fact that there might be complications and reservations. So all these concepts, death positive, death reflection, mindfulness, in your estimation, do they offer the individual a way to live a better life? And do they offer society a way to make the world less of a mess that it's in at the present? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I hope so. You know, remember that Freud called neurosis dreaming while awake. Plato in the cave says it's time to get out of the cave and fucking wake up. You know, Bob Marley is like, wake up and live. And that's what I think is the upshot of where things are trending, is that we need to become more explicitly aware of the catastrophic, mind-numbing, and socially debilitating consequences of being death-denying zombies if the world as we know it is to improve. And, and yeah, that idea dates back to antiquity. Some people have gotten there. I would submit most of us have made no progress since we split from the lemur 60 million years ago, <laughs> our last solitary primate ancestor. But I think this raises really a, a host of questions that I look forward to to exploring a bit and that's well how to how do we do it in other words we talked about mindfulness we talked about meditation we talked about flow all in the service of, of coming to terms with death but i think the next step metaphorically is to pull open our skulls and to look under the hood psychodynamically to consider what that would actually entail. And I've been working with some folks and they, they have a construct called existential maturity that I'm enamored with because Geza Roheim 
the psychodynamically oriented anthropologist, one of Freud's guys, he just said civilization is like a baby that's afraid of the dark. And we've joked over the years that it's time, humanity is in diapers. It's time for us to grow up. And so, yeah, next step in my mind, for my own sake, is to be able to be a bit more articulate about what the underlying psychological process would look like for an individual making strides in that direction. And let's hope that we can do that in the relatively near future. In what we were reading, one of the authors pointed to Ebenezer Scrooge in Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. Yep. And that's a, a perfect example. Here's a guy, he's, he's just absorbed with making money and treating poor Bob, what's his name? Cratchit. Cratchit. Cratchit like dirt. And, you know, he's just won't give money to the poor. And, all. and then he comes in contact with these spirits that show him his death. It's imminent. And that's right. when he, and when he dies, no one's going to care. They're like, just going to talk crap about him, you know, while he's lying there dead. And he either wakes up or comes to some realization that I got to change my life. You know, I gotta, I've got to be more considerate and generous. It's an amazing story that Dickens writes and it's so much in tune with what what we're saying, you know, absolutely. He's, he's confronted with his own mortality and he has to change. Anything you want to add Sheldon? Not really, except that I'm being silly and a little self-serving, but I had no idea what we were going to talk about today, except superficially. And I found this again, selfishly quite intriguing to just have to kind of articulate Maybe for my sake, and we've kind of danced around the edges of these notions for a long time, but for whatever reason, I like that we're moving in a more head-on direction. Yeah. Folks, we've been talking with Sheldon Solomon about death-positive and death-related subjects. Sheldon, thank you once again for another excellent conversation. It's my pleasure. Always a joy to talk to you both, and uh, let's do it again soon. Sorry, Super. it wasn't in person as it was supposed to be, but maybe sometime later in the summer we can we can try to revisit that. Note. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Let's uh, if you guys are up for it, uh, uh, and if we're not overridden by violence, virus, or fascism, or some combination <laughs> thereof, I'll be there. Great, Greg. We have a lot more to talk about. Excellent. Thank you so much. Okay, Thanks, Sheldon. We've been talking with Sheldon Solomon on death reflection, mindfulness, and death positive. So, Ken, what are your takeaways? Well, Steve, Sheldon repeats an idea that he said in past conversations, but it's worth repeating again. That the only way to live a good life is to come to terms with our mortality. Absolutely. And death reflection is one of the ways to do that, as is mindfulness, a buzzword of sorts that is trying to capture a state of mind that is conducive to this kind of death reflection that is thought to be associated with very positive outcomes. The bottom line is that coming to terms with death has a positive psychological impact. We talked about how you can also achieve this mindfulness 
in non-intentional ways, like working. Your sense of self is momentarily transcended, which is very different than the hyper-conscious contemplation, like meditation. Sheldon says that he and his partners are not the only folks who have failed to find autonomic and neuroanatomical differences between meditation and doing nothing. But he goes on to say that he believes that there are important psychodynamic elements to meditation. One of his partners, Tom Pasinski, and his students have done work with Buddhists in Korea, and they've done studies where they've done meditation and mindfulness training in the United States and have shown that it's remarkably effective for diminishing defensive reactions to death reminders, whereas just sitting around does not produce the same effect. Sheldon said that the death-positive movement is the antithesis of the denial of death as Ernest Becker described it in general, and most particularly as it relates to contemporary Western culture. He says if it's death anxiety that underlies our hostility to people who are different or are hanging on to a delusion in order to reduce existential uncertainties, well then death positive should be number one on our to-do list. Like anything, however, there's always a danger because this being America and people being people, it usually doesn't take long for any good idea to be monetized and co-opted. His concern is that, like any good thing under non-optimal circumstances, it could be reduced to yet another means to deny death rather than to come to terms with it in an uplifting fashion. And this is always a concern. Yeah. And he emphasizes that these issues surrounding life and death are always going to have fuzzy borders, and it's always going to be complicated. Right. Yeah. Sheldon says... We need to become more explicitly aware of the catastrophic, mind-numbing, and socially debilitating consequences of being death-denying zombies if the world is to improve. And hopefully to that end, we plan to explore existential maturity sometime in the near future. You know, that gives me a lot of hope. I, I like the fact that Sheldon is exploring these new ideas. I do too, Steve. You know, Becker 201, Becker 202, you know, going beyond the great books that Becker wrote back in the 70s. It's time now yes. for people to to move beyond Becker in a way. Even beyond their own terror management theory. Yes. Which has already earned a place in the annals and has stood the scrutiny for years and decades now. Absolutely. Yeah. So, important ideas, Steve. As always, important ideas. As always. So, folks, join us next time. Like us on Facebook. Please recommend us to your friends. You can find us at www.thehubforimportantideas.com. And support us on Patreon at www.patreon.com front slash thehubimportantideas. We are 100% listener supported. And please check out our documentary video series, Conversations with Solomon, Exploring Human Motivation. Now on YouTube. Thank you everyone for listening to the Hub for Important Ideas. I'm Steve James. And I'm Ken Swain. Stay safe everybody. Stay well. This has been a Contemporary Heroism Initiative production. <laughs>